Podcast One and Forbes present Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari, a show where women you may never meet will become your mentors. Join Denise in her New York City apartment and tap into her conversations with successful women who are dropping the V-bombs. That's right, they're getting vulnerable. Now, here's your host, Denise Rastari. Okay, so I'm in New York City in my apartment and I cannot wait to get started. And that's because sitting across from me at my kitchen table is Jamia Wilson. And Jamia is a writer, a feminist activist. She lives here in New York City, which makes me really happy that she's kind of a neighbor. And her words and her works are in the New York Times. She's been on CNN, Refinery29, Elle. She's a TED speaker. You kind of get the picture. She's got it all. And she's a columnist at Rookie, an online magazine and book series for teens. She's a Southern-born gal, and she's a nomad who grew up as an expat in Saudi Arabia, which I just love that story. And she's now the executive director of Women, Action, and the Media, an organization that advances gender justice in the media. She's the former vice president of programs at the Women's Media Center, and she's spoken alongside the greats like Jane Fonda and Gloria Steinem. And she's passionate about yoga, and she knows how to cook gluten-free, which I want, so I want some recipes, Jamia. <laughs> and she's, you just turned 36, right? Yes, I did. You just turned 36. So we're going to kick it off, and I'll kick it off with a mentoring moment. And I think you may have been there, Jamia. I was at the United State of Women. In, I was there. You were there back in June, July. And we, you had the morning session, and then we broke for lunch. And we were all instructed to come back we were going to break for an hour, and then we were supposed to come back to our exact seats that we were seated in <laughs> for the lunch. And for an hour, we were going to go to breakouts and do other things. So we do that, and we come back in, and now the lines start to form. There are 5,000 women here at the United State of Women, because you have great speakers. You had President Obama, Michelle Obama, and her speech oh was gosh. just fabulous. It was just amazing. If anyone, if you haven't heard it, just Google Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey, United State of Women. It's worth, it's really worth watching. So everybody's excited because we want to get back into the room. And there are like three different lines of women forming. And there are like three security guards trying to say to 5,000 women, make it one line. <laughs> Right. And I was towards the front of one line. So I was watching all of this and you're just watching it. And you're like thinking there is no way that a thousand women in one line are going to move over to another line. That's already a thousand women long. That isn't happening here. And I was with Farah Mohammed with the girls 20 and which is an organization that is Canada based, but it's global and it's all about advancing young women and educating young women so they can be leaders. So far and I are standing in this line and there's a part of me that's saying, why am I here exactly? 5,000 women, there's a lot going on here. And while we're in line, the women behind us start pushing and shoving. And then one woman says, you better watch out because if something drops, don't anyone drop, bend over to pick it up because you could be you know, trampled to death. And I'm feeling like all of a sudden I'm at this event, this event, the United State of Women, and I feel like I'm in Kmart on Black Friday, <laughs> which I never have been, thank God, in that line. I choose not to go there, like waiting to save $100 on some electronic device. And it was like, this is crazy. 
So then the women start chanting behind us and they're saying, let us in, Mm -hmm. let us in. And I'm like thinking, okay, this has gotten insane. So we go, we do get in and that's pretty orderly now getting in and everybody takes their seats and everything's going on. And a couple hours later, Farah says to me, you know, let us in. Is that not symbolic of Mm. what we've been saying all of our lives? Haven't we been saying, let us in, let us in to the corner office, let us in or let Mm. us on the sports fields, let us in. And it was one of those moments where I thought, first of all, I felt badly for being so judgmental. Like, you know, these women are crazy. They're like saying, let us in and they're chanting and they're talking about, you know, stampeding each other to get into the room. And, but then I really thought about it because it made me think, and I love those moments that take me from a place I'm at to a totally different place and make me think so differently. So I started to think about it and I thought, what keeps us from getting, and this is a thought we have a lot, right? But I really started to think about it that day. And one of the things that came to me was power and that we give away our power a lot. Mm -hmm. And we do that, I think, by thinking that we have to be perfect, by thinking that we're not good enough, that we're not smart enough, that somebody's smarter than us, that somebody's richer than us, that somebody's more educated than us. And by doing that, we give away our power. So that was one thought that went through my mind, that as women, especially young women, it's keeping your power and sharing your power. And that's the second point that I got to is, once again, we say this, but we just have to keep being reminded of it, that when we get to the top and we have that view, we've got to pull someone else up Mm. to the top with us. And when we're both up there, we need to pull up two more women, that we need to just keep pulling each other up. And that is my mentoring moment that I want to talk to you about. I love that mentoring moment because I was there that day and I remember seeing the lines and thinking, I'm never going to get there in time to speak on my panel and seeing it, but also feeling so energized by all of those women. And so I had a mentoring moment there too. Now you're making me think about it because I think that there was a lot of patience and faith that I had to have in the process that I was going to get to experience this fully, that there was going to be enough for me and for all of us even though it seemed like this is impossible. So many people, such limited time, such limited space, and it happened and it was magical. It was a great day. And I have to admit, I went in with that feeling of, oh my God, there's 5,000 people doing it. I was debating whether I really wanted to go or not. Mm-hmm. Not because I, it was because it was so, so many people. It was like, do I really want to go to an event that has 5,000 people? But afterwards, I was so happy I was there for many reasons. But that mentoring moment was one of those that made me think that we have to, we have to keep our power. So how do you yes. keep your power? Because you're, you're 36 and you're very powerful in a very good way, powerful. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I, my was mentored by Gloria Felt, formally, but I just met Gloria. You did? Yeah. So could you tell our listeners who Gloria is? Yes. So Gloria Felt is an amazing woman, a trailblazer who was the president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America when I worked there out of college. And she also has written books on women in power. And one of her books is called No Excuses. And it's about women taking their power and harnessing it. And she also now has an organization called Take the Lead Women. It's all about women's leadership. And she had said to me a couple of times in conversation as she was writing the book and afterward to always be mindful of the power that I had. And so she's been someone who's been integral in having me remember that, to remember that I can always make an empowered choice, even in moments of disempowerment. And 
I think a conversation we had about Planned Parenthood and why we did the work really made me think about that, that I had done some counseling and engagement with people, even outside of that work in volunteer work, because I'm very passionate about the issue of reproductive justice, because it's a form of power too, to be able to make the decisions that you need to for yourself and your family. And I always found that it was really a joy for me to talk to a woman who would call our hotline um, when I was volunteering and say, I feel disempowered. I don't, I'm pregnant. I don't know what to do. I don't have options. And to be able to tell them what options they had and to talk about the power that they had to change things in their lives. So I often think about Gloria because she would always kind of help me go from an undermining place or a place of lack of worthiness or one of those trains of thought that sometimes we can get into and say, well, what do you have the power to do? What's your power to? And that's always been helpful for me to remember in context to shared power. What's your power to? It's not about having power over or power under the power to. And that's a lesson I've really taken from her. And and that's been something that I think I knew in my bones, but really having her surface it became a part of my life mantra. And so now when do you find yourself pulling that up? Like in what situations yes. do you find yourself? Pulling all that up? the time, all the time. I mean, most recently, just a story you told me about, I, my husband had a CD release party on Friday night. He's a jazz musician. And this was a really big deal release because other albums he's done, he's done on labels, but this was something he wanted to produce for himself by himself. And he's a trained alto saxophonist and pianist, but mainly has played in jazz saxophone because that is the craft that he has, but this was his piano and sax debut. And so I really was just working hard to make this event a beautiful event for us, our family and our friends and all the people who came to hear it. And so I was having a great evening and we decided to go out to dinner afterward. And this group of men decided to elbow their way between me and my friends and take over all of the seats that I was saving at the bar. And It was really interesting because I think they thought based on their size compared to mine and the fact that they had a larger group that they could just push me around and say, hey, we actually need these seats. And so I said kind of in a little voice at first, all of the seats, because I think there was that social conditioning that made me think, oh, these guys say they need these seats, so they must or they must have saved them or they must have a reservation. And then I noted that they didn't have a reservation. They didn't have them. They just claimed those seats and said they needed them. And so I decided to speak up and say, I actually have the power to claim the space too and say, we are having a party here. My husband's having the CD release and we have reservations. We have a big group of people here and we will be needing those seats and, and take our do? rightful space. They grumbled a little bit and they moved along. And I chuckled to myself because I thought, oh, okay, I just taught them that they picked the wrong one tonight. (laughs) And that is something that I think about a lot, that even in those little moments of trying to play with your power, um, that it's also a teachable moment. I think that they looked at me and made an assessment about who they could tell what to do. And for me, it felt good that, you know, it wasn't demolishing the patriarchy, but it was a good step at reminding myself that it's possible and that we are going to need to take moves and not just have people put us in our place. That is a great lesson, I think, and being able to, to use it in business and our personal lives, because I think it's when we start building those muscles that mm. no matter where we're at, right? I think a lot of times we think that's something that I do in the workplace, but my personal life is different. And it's that constant conditioning our muscles, our brains, our hearts, our muscles on our entire body to be able to say, 
I can do this. And every time you have a success that just makes that muscle stronger and stronger, but that leads to the imposter syndrome. Mm. We've talked about this. Mm -hmm. We've touched on it. We haven't really talked about it deeply. There are moments when I can have that power and say, you know, I can get this done. And, but there were other moments and I don't have the imposter syndrome any longer, but when I was younger, I did. And it was usually almost always around the fact that I'm a college dropout. Mm -hmm. So I was always having that imposter syndrome of how did I get here? Well, I got there because I worked hard and I'm pretty smart and I have integrity and a moral compass. You know, I've got a lot of those things. The thing I was missing was a college degree. And I let that get into my head way too often of thinking, how did I get here? But what about you? You're educated. You're highly educated. Do you ever have the imposter syndrome? I have it every day. You do? I have it every single day. Okay, come over here. <laughs> We're going to get rid of that. We're going to knock and, that out, okay? And I'm bold about talking about it because I think I, I talk to women who are younger than myself and teens a lot. And a lot of times they'll say, how did you get confidence or how did you stop being afraid? And I'll say every time I do public speaking, I have to deal with stage fright. I have anxiety. It's something I've lived with and something that I have to manage in my life. And I think that in a way it's been a gift because it's taught me to be courageous and to do things anyway, even if there's resistance that's bubbling up inside of me that the goal, the mission, what my purpose is, is so much more important than the fear. And so that is what really comes up for me with the imposter syndrome. And I think a lot about the imposter syndrome because both my parents have PhDs. I haven't gotten one yet, and I'm always going back and forth about whether I want one. And one of the reasons why I don't have it is because I felt like the first time I applied to get one, when I was in a terminal master's program and well poised and to get one, I had a 4.0 in my master's program, I felt like I was going to get this PhD because I needed to get one because my grandmother said, I really pushed for your mom and her sister to get PhDs so all my kids could have PhDs. Your dad has one. What are you going to do? You have to have the same education as your parents. And I know that she came to that as a black woman who was low income from a farming family, was the first in her family to go to college. And so she came at that as a place of pride to say that, Education is something that can never be taken from you. But I realize there's a lot I can do in the world that doesn't need to have a degree attached to it for me to be worthy. And it might not necessarily be what I need to be doing with my time to do the work that's in purpose for me. And so just kind of dealing with the demons that I had around that and those familial expectations to be enough because I got my PhD (laughs) have led me to decide to try other things and to take up opportunities that have come my way. Maybe I'll get one one day because I love school. And as I said, I'm really good at school. I happen to be one of those people who I think went to school and continued to do more of it because it was something that I knew how to do. But then there were these other things that I was afraid to do because I was afraid of making a sound, afraid of taking up too much space. And those are the things we really should be doing. And you, do you feel like you're doing them <laughs> and now? And I do. I do Good. feel like I'm Good. doing them now. And so I, I still, I grapple with this every day. I think sometimes, oh, who am I to be the one to run an organization or to be speaking in this place or that place to be writing? But then who am I not to be? Exactly. And who am I inspiring who thinks that she shouldn't be there too when they see me there? And that's what really actually gets me to move past the fear every time. Okay, so if you ever feel that again, 
call me or text me. Yes. And it thank won't be you. just me, but there's a whole posse of women out there, okay, <laughs> that will say you deserve to be exactly where you're at and then some. There thank is not you. a moment of doubt. I'm, trust me, that's no one thinks that. No one thinks that. So I want to go into your mentoring moment. So yes. tell me a story about something that's happened to you. Well, I have been thinking a lot lately about how I became a feminist because that has led me to do this work. Someone just interviewed me the other day and asked, um, why is it important that we could have a, a woman president? Why is that something that matters to you? And I said, to me, it's about having a feminist one. And so that's when I realized that my mentoring moment has to do with me really deciding to be empowered as a woman, strong in the fact that I come from a long line of women who have defied expectations and been trailblazers, even when they couldn't see other people like them in their fields. Um, and so my mentoring moment, I would say, came from a time when I was told that I could not be one, that I could not be a feminist. I was told that by an uncle of mine who overheard me talking to my parents about watching the Anita Hill trials at uh, the hearings on TV with the rest of the country. And I was still very young, about 10 or 11 years old. And I had noticed that the men in my family who are pretty liberal actually were saying that they were really annoyed that Anita Hill had brought up these allegations that they felt like sexual harassment was a distraction from the fact that we were going to have a black man in the Supreme Court and we really needed another one now that Thurgood Marshall was gone. And they didn't really think about what it meant for a woman to be harmed, for a woman to be disparaged publicly, what that was going to do to her professionally and personally personally. And not really understanding workplace harassment at that time or having, you know, I was still in middle school, um, just really feeling like I know what it feels like not to be believed when I've been harmed and when I've been wronged. I've witnessed my mom being harassed on the street and sexually harassed. And I've seen these things. And so I said, I, be I believe Anita Hill. And my uncle said, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, no, I think I'm a feminist, like those congresswomen who organized and, and I saw that on TV. And he said, oh, that's something that white women do. That's not for you, honey. And I remember very defiantly saying, no, that that is for me. And that's what I am. And I've never stopped being one. And so for me, that was a mentoring moment, even though he didn't mean for it to be. He's who I thank for my feminism because he really pushed me to take a stand. It showed me, oh, that this might actually make some people that I'm close to very uncomfortable, that I've decided to draw a line in the sand about who I am. And I'm going to do it anyway because this is what feels right to me and this is what feels human. I think I call myself a feminist because I believe in our full humanity and I believe in the fullest potential and fullest dignity for every human. And we name it feminism because women are the humans whose humanity have been undermined historically across the globe. And so that was a mentoring moment. And that's why I've committed my life to this work. And in every job I've been in, even if it wasn't a professional feminist job like the one I have, I've shown up as a feminist every day and I'm unapologetic about it. As you should be. As Thank you. you. Be. And and I have a question. I have a lot of questions. But one is, what is your definition of feminism? We were talking about this mm -hmm. a few weeks ago on one of the other podcasts about young women are sometimes saying, you know, I don't understand what being a feminist is, so therefore I don't want to be a feminist because I don't understand what it means. So what is your definition as a, definition, as a young woman, a woman? My definition of it is close to the dictionary definition that feminism is the political, cultural, and economic and social equality of people of all genders. That's mine too. Yes. 
And that's, but do you hear younger women sometimes having a different definition or do you think that's the definition that everyone's going with now? I think that the word has been loaded. There's been a weight that's been put on this word. There've been a lot of different social conversations about it. And the word sometimes has connotations that aren't the fault of the word. It's the fault of media um, and misrepresentation or people misrepresenting just kind of like with religion sometimes, misrepresenting what an entire group of people believe. And so for me, I've often said that controversially sometimes to some of my elders that I'm less concerned about whether a young woman will call herself a feminist and more about whether she shows up as a feminist and whether she's doing feminist work. And maybe that's because this generation is less focused on labels all the way across the board. But I'm just, you know, if you're doing anti-immigration work with analysis as it relates to gender and race and equality all the way, then that is feminist work. And I'm going to support that work. If you're doing healthcare work, if you are working on economic justice, if you are running a small business and you are making sure that you're hiring people equally and committed to equal pay, that is feminist work. And so I'm mostly focused on that more so than, than semantics. Do I love the word feminist and am I a proud feminist? Absolutely. But I'm, I'm more focused on this word um, being lived in action. And I think your mentoring moment, one of the great things about it is that your mentor was really an anti-mentor yes. in some ways, right? I'm this, <laughs> like the anti-hero. Person, right? Here's the person telling you that you can't do this. And you're like saying, well, yes, I can. And you were like, how old? 14, 11? I'm not 11. 11. Mm-hmm. And that is just that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And what about your mom? Was she like saying, go, you know, go, Jamia, go? Or was it like... She loved it. So my mom is a feminist. So is my grandmother. I mean, I, my grandmother passed a couple of months ago and she was 95 years old. My other grandmother is her same age and they were friends. And I just felt so lucky to have both of those women in my life because they're both so strong and formidable. And my grandmother would have loved to cast her vote for a woman and just wasn't able to do that because her life ended right before it. But I know that she was a feminist because she said so. And so for me, I've always been raised with that ethos. And it's been an interesting thing because my mother is a feminist who in many ways has been um, in a field and also working in a context that um, there aren't many other women like her doing the work. So her field now has mainly women in speech pathology, but she's a medical speech pathologist. So her field of focus has a lot of men in it who are in the same positions of leadership that she's in. And she was also working in Saudi Arabia in a high level job. So that also just knowing the history of Saudi Arabia and the gender work that needs to be done there as well, really gave me a great example of seeing how resourceful she was and how my mom just really taught me what it meant to believe in one's inherent worth. Even if you weren't felt like you were welcome at that table to pull your seat out and be at the table because it was important. So she's always been a champion. And if anything, she has actually been the one who's really pushed me with the imposter syndrome and other things. She has said to me that if she can only give me one gift in life, it is to teach me that I don't need anyone else's approval, that I have all that I need. Wow. That's huge. She's, she's so wonderful. I mean, I just, I don't know what I would have done without having her as my coach. She always says to me, she's like, you know, I really should be put on retainer because I give you so much good coaching. That is great. Okay. Well, so let's do something that I love to do and that's play. I'm done with that. Oh my gosh. I love it. So, you know, telling things that we're done with in life. And I think no matter how old we are, there are things we are done with, right? At my age, there are more things I might be done with, but maybe not. So I'm done with apologizing for things, for saying I'm sorry 
when I haven't done anything to be, I'm sorry about. And I know there's a lot of controversy about this. And there was a New York Times article about a year ago that women say, I'm sorry, way too much. And that takes away our power because men aren't apologizing. And the flip side of that is saying that we're tearing women apart Mm -hmm. by analyzing every word that comes out of our mouths that's saying, okay, who cares if we say I'm sorry? But I was thinking about it the other day. I I was at a restaurant and I ordered soup and the soup came to me cold. And I said, I'm sorry, but the soup is cold. And as I was saying that, I thought, why am I sorry? You know, I'm I didn't do anything. They should be, it should be the opposite way around, right? So why am I saying that I'm sorry? And then that thought left. Then I got an email. So somebody wrote to me and they wanted me to do something for them. And I wrote back to them and I said, I can do this, but here's what I need from you. And they didn't respond. So one thing you could do at that point is say, okay, it's in their court, right, to respond. They're asking me for a favor. I said, I will help you, but here's what I need. And they're not sending it to me. So I wrote back to them and thinking maybe my response, it got lost or whatever. And I had said, you know, I'm willing to help, but here's what I need. No response. So once again, having been smart, you having having a smarter moment, I would have just said, okay, I'm just deleting this, but I thought I'll try one more time. So I wrote back and what did I say? I'm sorry to bug you. (laughs) And I thought, but thank God I didn't hit the point. I didn't hit the send button. I'm like, why am I sorry to bug someone who's asked me for a favor? I'm willing to help them, but they're not responding to me. So that's one of the things I'm done with. I'm very willing and will be the first person to stand up and say, I'm sorry when I've done something to be sorry for, but I'm going to really try to stop saying I'm sorry when my soup comes to me cold and when I'm not sorry. Yes. So that's one of the things I'm done with. I'm done with that too. I added that filter to my Google Chrome. Oh, to, you have that <laughs> to make it so that I can make sure that I'm stopping using "sorry" or saying "I'm just" for all the things that we do to um, undermine our language. I have, I've really been trying to do that as well. So, can you explain? There's a plugin, right? There's yes, a there's a plugin, plugin on, on Google Chrome, and so it will stop you from saying "I'm sorry." It'll put a little red line, like spell check, just to remind you. Or apologize. I apologize for is another one that it does that too. Right. And Unless is, you really mean it. <laughs> and and I, here's a little exercise. It's really scary. Search in your emails. I'm sorry and see how many emails come up with that, which was also another thing for me then to say, I'm done with being running late or taking on too much. Cause I had a lot of, I'm sorry's for things that I wasn't getting back to people on time Mm -hmm. that I was sorry for that. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I had not done something I had said I would do, which made me look at it and say, okay, so for all of these, there's another message in here. And it's like, don't overcommit and just say no to start with. Don't take on more then I can actually get done so that I'm not actually saying I'm sorry for when I am sorry too. So that's the other story in there. So what about you? What are you done with? Yes. So I am done with trying to force relationships with people who are not reciprocal. So I think that for me, I was just talking about this with my mom the other day about saying, wow, I've kind of hit this new transition. Maybe it came with my birthday or age or something where I've realized we're going in lots of different directions. And I've always been one of those people, maybe it's an only child thing where I've really kept my friends close. And no matter how busy I am, I really try to connect with people. I really try to show people that I love them. And I want to continue to do that because that's in my heart. But I think I've taken on historically too much responsibility for holding entire relationships by myself. 
So I'm going to ask for what I need. And I'm also going to let things be if they need to go in a different direction. It's easier said than done, but it's something I've realized is holding me back. And this is a personal and professional thing, I think, sometimes to try to force relationships in a certain direction when sometimes you need to let things play out. It doesn't mean that you can't have love and appreciation and respect for people, but there's something energetically that I think needs to shift for me around placing too much value on what I give without also receiving from the people who I hold most dear. And so something I'm trying to hold myself to, and it's one of the scariest realizations that I've had. It's one of my birthday resolutions. And is there an example you can share about how that plays out? Yeah. You know, I think, I think it can play out for me in terms of just, and I'm I'm thinking about it a little bit because I was talking about it with a friend recently about someone that we both really love who just has not been engaged for a long time because they've had other people in their life, other things that are going on. And I've beat myself up a lot thinking, oh, is she mad at me? Is she mad at me? What did I do? What did I do? And this person pops in and out of my life and I've brought, put it on me and I know that she has no ill will toward me, but there's something about needing that approval or needing that connection that's been hurting me. And so I've just decided wow, I just need to let it be, let the relationships form turn into something different. Maybe we'll come back together in the closeness that we had when we were younger, or maybe the relationship's taking on new form and she's prioritizing other things and so, and other people. And so for me to let go with that, I think is one of the harder things, but I'm feeling a little bit of a liberation that's coming from even the idea of unhooking from that dynamic. And maybe it's, I went to all girls school. So I, you know, all my relationships are just so intense. <laughs> They're so intense. My, when my best friend and I stopped living together, we'd been roommates for so long. It was, we had a, a domestic partnership as we called it. And it was like, we were getting separated and I felt like, oh, we need to conscientiously uncouple. What, are they, what was Gwyneth Paltrow's thing, conscious uncoupling? Right. Because it wasn't like there was a problem between us, but there was like a loss, like a mourning, a death that we didn't live in the same house and I needed her counsel on everything and all of that. And we really just needed to grow and, and experience life. And, and I love where our relationship is now. But I remember at the time just having this panic. What are we going to do? We live in different cities how is this going to happen without her in my life? And so it's just, it's interesting that what comes with growth can be painful, but also creating an opening. And I think too, as we're talking about all these different topics, that one part of us is saying one thing, it's not that we're crazy. I mean, we're, Mm -hmm. we're acknowledging this one part is saying, feel powerful. You know, you can be who you are. You don't need anybody else's approval, but your own. And then and I'll use my own example so I can feel that. And then I can ask somebody a simple question and feel like they're not telling me, Mm. they don't want to tell me something that will hurt my feelings. And I'm Mm. thinking, did I do something wrong? Did all these things go through my head? So one side of me is feeling very powerful and the other side of me is feeling like a little girl, like, you know, emotions that are even hard to explain because there are things little girls go through. It's like, is she mad at me? As you were saying, does she not like what I'm doing? Is she not approving of what I'm doing? And I think even at my age, I still go through them. So I think, you know, it's all that whole, as you were saying, it's a growing process that every day there is a new challenge and it gets easier because at some point you're able to say, 
I need to put that over in this hole, in this silo, and let it be. And I think one of the best lessons I have learned in this past year is mm. just let go of it and let it be. It will come around. As long as you haven't done anything to harm someone, you know, any there is no real reason, just let it be. And it, it, it's like you give a different energy towards it, as you were just saying, to let it take on a whole different life than the one that you're trying to push it in. Because a lot of times things greater than what you're trying to push it into will happen Yes, when you let it be. And I feel like whenever I've allowed people to rush me, so I got some really good advice too from a mentor who is an executive director who's been one a long time, who said, don't let people rush you. Um, when I first came in the job, I was asking her, oh, what should I do? I feel like I need to deliver on X, Y, Z. And she said, don't let them rush you because if if you make a mistake, people are going to be on that mistake right away. But if you have your strategy and you figure out what you're going to do, then you'll be more measured and have a plan of action and be able to fix solutions and course correct. And I've thought a lot about that because my mom would always say, watch, wait, and let it play out. And that used to always bother me when she'd say that because I would want answers then. But now I'm thinking, oh, she's my mentor told me, don't let people rush you. Mom was right all along <laughs> and letting it be that all of that wisdom is so, so important. And each and every day I'm baby stepping my way toward getting there. So I will say to your mom, if she's listening, she's a great role model, a great mentor and you're spot you because you're smiling every you. time you do talk <laughs> about your mom. So it's great. So there's so much more to talk about. We can talk about power and feminism and how do we find our power. And I'm going to bring in Julie Zeilinger, but first... I want to thank TrueCar for supporting Mentoring Moments. So the other day I was talking to a young woman and she said, I was listening to your podcast a couple of weeks ago and I heard you talk about TrueCar. And I was like, thank you. I just moved and I need to buy a used car and I didn't even know where to start. And then she said to me, so do you want to know what my favorite part about TrueCar is? So I was like, yeah, tell me more. So she told me that, you know, she liked how easy it was to use the app and she could see over 500,000 used cars. And so she really liked that. And she liked the pricing curve so she could see what others in her area paid for the same car. And she liked being able to save money with True Car. And the average user saves over 3000 off the MSRP. So she liked all of that. But what she really loved was having a relationship with a True Car certified dealer. So there are like 11,000 true car certified dealers nationwide. And what she liked, what she said she liked about it was she was able to connect to a real human being. So she could talk to someone. They could answer her questions. She could tell them that she was confused. She just said that she felt like there was a human being that really cared and wanted to make her buying experience a really positive one. And for her, that was huge. So all of the other pieces she liked, but the one that she loved the most was having that True Car Certified Dealer Network and having that human being she could talk to because information, she got information she needed. And as I always say, information is power. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit TrueCar.com or download the True Car app to enjoy a better car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. Hey, everybody, I'm Heather Dubrow. And I'm Dr. Terry Dubrow. Every Friday, check out my podcast, Heather Dubrow's World. We also have a brand new show, The Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig Show, every Tuesday. So don't forget iTunes and Podcast One. Tune in to Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig on Tuesdays and Heather Dubrow's World every Friday.
Napa know-how. This month, get a five-quart jug of Napa full synthetic motor oil plus a Napa platinum oil filter for $21.98. That's a pretty unbelievable deal. But trust us, it's totally real, but only for a limited time. So get Napa full synthetic and a Napa platinum oil filter for $21.98 today. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General states pricing. Sales prices do not include applicable state local taxes or recycling fees. Offer ends for thirty nineteen. Mentoring moments. Takeaway. Okay, so now sitting next to me, all huddled around my kitchen table here, is Julie Zeilinger. And Julie and I met when you were 19, I think. Um, So Julie is the founding editor of the F-Bomb, which is associated with the Women's Media Center. She wrote two books. She's appeared on all the major networks talking about feminism. She graduated from Barnard in 2015, and she's 22 years old. So let me... 23. 23. I'm sorry. I know that. You're 23. She's 23. I just asked her that earlier. For some reason, I want you to be 22. So let me break that down. In high school, she launched the F-Bomb. It's a blog and a community for teen feminists because she couldn't find the teen voice about feminism. So she did what almost all 19-year-olds would do. She created a platform (laughs) for that. And then an agent discovered her through the F-Bomb and then Julie wrote her first book called a little effed up. And then, so that came out when she was after her freshman year in Barnard. And then she wrote another book called College 101. And it was a book based on her experiences at being a freshman at Barnard, as well as other women's experiences, thinking that if women could have this handbook, life would be easier for them. And this year she became a Forbes under 30. And together, I think Julie and I have published about five different posts on Forbes. And I have to share one story that I just love. So when Julie and I just met, it was right around the time, this is like back in 2012, she was at Barnard, and the media was really big on, they were talking, there was a lot of bad talk about Ashley Judd's puffy face. And there was, I don't know if y'all remember this, but it was about, is, you know, did she do this? Is she had worked on? And she was, it was just crazy. And it's like, don't we have better things to talk about than Ashley Judd's puffy face? So I was like, I want to write a post about this, but I want to write about it to see how young women, young feminists are thinking about this. So I, emailed Julie and I said, can you help me write this post? I just need a line. I just need something small, just something, your thoughts about this. Julie responds and says, I'm between classes and I'll have like 45 minutes soon. Is that okay? And I'll get back to you. And I'm like, sure. 45 minutes later, she pens a 700 word <laughs> essay that is, it's, I published it as is. I didn't edit a word, I don't think. I was just amazed. In that moment, I was like, I want to be Julie. I want to have this <laughs> gift of writing this intelligently in 45 minutes between breaks between my classes. And then Ashley Judd tweeted that post on Forbes and said, this is a must read by a college student. So anyway, I just had to, I had to share that story. So Julie, welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Thank you so much for having Hi, me. Julia. I'm so excited. Any chance to talk with Jamia also? Oh, oh welcome. so excited to right. see you again. <laughs> So we little, love each other. So yes. I didn't know this, but Jamia and Julie know each other. So when I invited them both to be on the podcast, then they were they were having a love fest with them. I love Jamia. I love Julie. It was like, so tell us what your takeaways are, the, what you heard Jamia and I talking about. Let's start there. Yeah, there are so many things. I just I want to jump into all of them. But I guess uh, starting with one of the last things you guys were talking about with what you're done with, um, and especially talking about apologizing. Uh, and when you when you mentioned that, 
I have, of course, had so many of those moments. I think so many young women, women of all ages really have had those moments where we just apologize for everything because we're trained to. But something I've been thinking about a lot is apologizing on a much deeper level and sort of apologizing for existing in a way, Mm. uh, which is something I've encountered in a lot of ways. You know, women are just sort of bred to not take up that much space and and to just always be quiet and to never disrupt things. But I especially encountered this as a recent college grad when it came to negotiating. And, you know, before I'd ever had to be in a real career situation and had to sit in that room and negotiate, you know, of course, I was all with Sheryl Sandberg's lean in. All women should just go in there and, and claim their power and ask for what they're worth. It's so easy in theory. And then the first time I got into a room and had to negotiate, I felt like such a hypocrite because I was sitting there and they, they threw out a number to me. And my first response was, oh, I should be so grateful. I, I should apologize that they're even trying to pay me that much. Like that, that seems ridiculous to me. I'm not worth that. I'll just, I'll just accept it and move on. And it took me so long after that. And I'm on my second job now and I feel like I've learned a lot. But that moment was really a turning point for me where it's one thing in theory to say, I want to stop apologizing or, or I want to take up this space and I deserve that and to feel that on a theoretical level um, and to talk about, you know, I was a women's studies minor and, and, and took all those classes and it's great to talk about that in the classroom, but then to really hold yourself accountable and say, this is what I'm going to do in my real life and my lived experience um, was hard. <laughs> so Julie, why do you think that is so hard? I mean, I, I can think of reasons why it is, but why do you think that's so hard? I mean, I really think as I was saying, I think women are completely still socialized to take up less space. And, and I think it's actually a really interesting moment to talk about this, especially with a younger generation, because I think it is generationally different. And I think we've absolutely made progress where young women, you know, my parents raised me equal to my brother. It was never a question. And yet I still came away with this socialization. Um, and I think it's an interesting time to talk about it as, as someone who runs a feminist blog for teens, who works with teens through MTV, and especially now that feminism as a word is sort of trending. And these ideas are maybe more out there than they've ever been. The idea that women are, of course, equal and they should take up space and, and they, they should demand that. But I still think that there's this gap in being able to say that. And as I was saying in my own experience, really living it, I think we still need to give young women the opportunities in their younger years to really act on it rather than just telling them it's something they deserve. And that to me is the distinction. I think it's very hard sometimes to take things into the real world because as we were just saying, all your fears, all of the, everything that's playing into your world surfaces, right? So you can learn it and you can feel it and then putting it into practice. So that's what's so hard. I don't know if I mentioned this in the introduction. Did I say that you were the editor of MTV Founders? I don't remember, but that's true. Okay. okay. (laughs) So I want to also say that because that's your current job is that you're the editor of MTV Founders and that you have this great job. So you were just talking about, you know, taking jobs and that you do have a great job. I do. Yes. Mm. And it's, it's been a really incredible experience. And, and, and that's sort of to dive into another takeaway, if I could, um, yes. just thinking about mentorship and, and sort of it, it occurred to me while you were talking and I can't remember the exact phrase mm. that it, it happened in. But I've been thinking a lot about mentorship lately and sort of how I always assumed it had to be this top down hierarchical intergenerational experience. And something I found through MTV Founders and, and through the F-bomb just working with teens who, you know, in actuality, are only some of them are only two, three, four years younger than me, I, I find I can still be a mentor to them and have really tried to enact that kind of relationship. And 
and try to, as you were saying before, always bring women, especially young women, but really anyone who who faces oppression in their day to day life. If I have the opportunity to bring them up, being able to do that and not feeling like I have to be a certain age to do that or had to have had a certain experience to do that of understanding the power, as you were saying, the power that you do have and really trying to use that. And that to me is mentorship more than any hierarchical relationship. I agree. I, I think that mentoring is not about being the oldest person in the room. So Jamia and I met through Tammy Timbits, yes. and she's the founder of She's the First, and Tammy's 30 years old, and that's how we met. So I think that you know, having younger women, no matter how old we are, having younger women, we can learn so much through them. Yeah, I mean, I've learned so much from Rookie, which is also, you know, it's was run, our editor-in-chief was, I think Tavi was 15 when I started writing for Rookie, and she... I have always said it was the best boss that I ever had. And there's something about the vision that she had then and a real and the and the fact that she still has this vision, the clear vision and the clear passion for creating content by and for young people that um, I felt would remind me to be accountable to my younger self. And I've carried that value from just watching her example as a leader, learned so much from her about how I've developed limiting thinking as I've gotten older because of how we're trained socially, et cetera. And that's one of the reasons that I really enjoy being a part of that community. I learned so much from teen young women and other young women that are there. So that's my word to all women of all ages, take these relationships, make them live them, just do things with them. Because no matter how old we are, we're learning from each other just constantly. Mm -hmm. It's bottom up, it's top down, and it's peer to peer. Yes. And Julie, is there anything else that you're sitting there listening? So yeah, I think just one of the things that I also took away is I think it all sort of underlying all these things is the willingness to be vulnerable too. Mm. Um, which I, and sort of just in talking about intergenerational things, especially, um, that's sort of what I always want to say to an older mentor, not that, as we said, not that a mentor has to be older, but I think that there is this idea that these things have to be hierarchical and someone should know what they're talking about. Um, but I think some of the best mentoring experiences I've had have been when older women come to me saying, I don't understand your generation rather than trying to make assumptions about it and rather than trying to make assumptions about you in order to help you. Tell me where you're at. Tell me where people of your age are at. And once I understand that, then I can help you. Um, and that does, and I think we, a lot of young women are sort of harder on older women for that because that does take a lot of vulnerability, but I think that's sort of the best way to approach it. Being vulnerable is hard, Yeah, but you get so far when you are, because if we aren't sharing our stories and if we're not being vulnerable and there are times, there are places where you don't want to be, Mm -hmm. right? I'm not saying that you need to wear your emotions on your sleeve. That's something else I'm done with is wearing my emotions on my sleeve at the wrong times. But I think that that's when you're able to share those real stories that just really help each other. So Julie, what are you done with? You're 23. (laughs) What are you done with? I think it's still apologizing in that sense, but in, in sort of that deeper sense, whether it's negotiating or just sort of, as Jamia was saying, with, with relationships, I, I do feel like I've been so trained to be accommodating in, in any kind of capacity. Um, and I think well, there's definitely a time and place for that. And maybe there are some people who should be more accommodating and, and at least just conscious of those relationships. I think I'm done bending over backwards to try to please other people, which is such a gender stereotype that I've deeply ingrained. Um, and just as we were saying before, recognizing the power that you do have and and really owning it. Um, That's something I'm constantly trying to do. Um, And I'm done 
not trying to do it anymore, I guess. <laughs> and Jamia, do you have anything that you want to add to that? Yes, I'm just, I'm excited about it. I was going to say we can be accountability partners for each other because- yeah, I think that's a great idea. That is something that I, I work on. I have a friend who actually kind of, you know when someone gives you like a stunning- look back at yourself, a stunning reflection of who you are. And we were at this jazz festival outside in the park and she's a good friend. And we both were raised in evangelical faiths, different ones, but we're both feminist and pretty liberal, but have that upbringing. And she's working on a book about that right now. And uh, she stopped me while we were talking and I was talking to her about some struggles and obstacles I was going through. And she said, I just want to reflect back to you. And I think you probably picked this up in church and I've worked on this myself, but I see in you sometimes this tendency to want to take responsibility for everything, to bend over backwards when you don't need to, to apologize for things and take things on that other people should be doing. Did you learn that at church? And if so, you should think about that and think about the good things you took from church, but also how you might want to take some of those habits and practices down because they're not moving you forward. And it stung to hear it, but it was such an accurate reflection (laughs) that I've thought a lot about it and I've journaled a lot about it. And I thought, you know, the things one day Gloria Steinem asked me when I worked with her, what made it so that I could talk to people who might have oppositional viewpoints more than mine so openly and with such an open heart? And I said, I think being evangelical and being raised evangelical will teach anyone how to be a good organizer because you always believe that a heart and a mind can be changed. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't get as exhausted or fatigued um, talking to people who have different viewpoints as mine because I'm good at finding places of connection and values with people, shared values. And so I think back to that a lot that I'm like, that's a good thing that I gained from a very patriarchal system. Mm -hmm. But a bad thing that I gained is the social idea that I need to shrink myself in order to be valuable and in order to maintain the order of God, which is not right. And so that's something that I've really been working through now is actually just owning that and being unapologetic about it too. And and moving past the shame that I have for carrying that for so long. And we have a few minutes left and I, I could just go on and on with the two of you. But Julie, I have a question. Do you feel responsible? Like, I have that feeling that I'm responsible for everything in the world. And it's not because that I think I'm so wonderful or great. It's just for whatever reason, I tell this story all the time. If somebody were to say to me, you know, on the way to your place, I was in an accident, I would feel responsible for that accident, okay? (laughs) Because it would be like, oh my God, if I didn't invite them to my place, they wouldn't have been in the taxi cab and they wouldn't have been in the accident, so therefore it's my fault. So it's not narcissism. It's just like this crazy, I am responsible for all things that happen in the world. And giving that up is hard. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think I've definitely experienced that. And I think in different ways also related to sort of perfectionist tendencies. And especially as I'm sure we were all high achieving Mm -hmm. young women in in whatever capacity we grew up and and so many young women are, they put immense pressure on themselves um, to be perfect in every way. And Courtney Martin, someone we both know, wrote a beautiful book about that called Perfect Girls, Starving Daughters. And I think it's still very real today. That's another thing I've done with is trying to be perfect. And I encourage Mm -hmm. everyone to as well. Yeah, that's a hard one. Yes. But that takes away from our power, as we were saying in the very beginning, if we think, and that's one of the, one of the posts that you wrote for Forbes is about what's keeping millennials from being Mm -hmm. leaders. And it was that we think we have to be perfect, that parents are raising their daughters or the media that we have to be perfect. And so therefore, 
that's keeping us from being leaders because we're not perfect. Mm -hmm. And mm. I could go on and on. So we're going to have to take this up at another time. But I want to thank you both so much. I can't tell you how much it means to me for both of you to be joining me. So where can we find you? Let's go through that. Thank you so much for having me. You can find me at jamiawilson.org or follow me on Twitter at jamiaw. Yeah, and thank you so much. This was amazing that I got to hang out with both of you. Uh, I also am at juliezeilinger.com and at juliezeilinger on Twitter. Perfect. Thank you both so much. So we have to like do hold hands thank and blow you. kisses. <laughs> <laughs> thank yes. you both. Thank and do it you. again. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today. And to get Mentoring Moments the moment it's available every Wednesday, please subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review. And check out my show notes on Forbes.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how do you keep your power? Have you experienced the imposter syndrome? And are you done with saying you're sorry? You can find me on Twitter at Denise Rastari. Until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. Napa know-how. This month, get a five-quart jug of Napa full synthetic motor oil plus a Napa platinum oil filter for $21.98. That's a pretty unbelievable deal. But trust us, it's totally real, but only for a limited time. So get Napa Full Synthetic and a Napa Platinum Oil Filter for $21.98 today. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General States pricing. Sales prices do not include applicable state local taxes or recycling fees. Offer ends for thirty nineteen. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, they are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following, following the rule of law, it is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.